Welcome to Menopause Uprising, the Wellness Warrior podcast with me, your host, Catherine O'Keefe. Today's episode is one that's very close to my heart. Um, as many of you know, I am the representative for the Daisy Network in Ireland. The Daisy Network is a charity aimed at supporting young girls and women that experience POI, premature ovarian insufficiency, which is a form of early menopause. I'm really humbled and thrilled to be chatting today to Jenny Grace and Ruth Brennan from our POI support group. I think this is a conversation I hope many people will listen to, not just for to empower you with education, but just maybe to allow you to appreciate the privilege that is natural menopause and the challenges that come with menopause starting at the age of 12. POI is um, a condition that needs more awareness and needs more support in Ireland. And myself and the support group, we really want to change the conversation around POI in Ireland. And this conversation is another step in that direction. So I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. POI, premature ovarian insufficiency, it used to be referred to as premature ovarian failure, a word and description I really never liked. Part of my menopause education and my menopause journey was, I guess, where I started to research more into what menopause was when I started to experience the symptoms of perimenopause eight plus years ago. And as challenging as um, I found some of the symptoms, and I know many of you will be finding the symptoms, there is a whole other aspect to menopause. And I came across several years ago, I came across premature ovarian insufficiency. And I linked in with the Daisy Network, which is a charity that operates out of the UK that supports women with POI. And I really just felt there was such a gap in terms of zero and I mean absolutely zero support in Ireland for young girls and young women who had experienced or were recently diagnosed with POI and I felt as challenging as I may have been finding some of my perimenopause symptoms they really paled in comparison to the journey that many people experience as they go through um, POI. So today we I'm really excited to be joined with um, two members from our POI virtual support group, which due to COVID went virtually, but it has been uh, a huge support to many women over. I think it's probably the last year and a half since it started um, in COVID times. But before we chat uh, with Ruth and Jenny, just to explain what is premature ovarian insufficiency. This was a term that was uh, first coined in 1942. And basically what it means is that it's a condition where the ovaries stop functioning. And that happens generally before the age of 40. The ovaries can stop releasing eggs and they'll also stop producing the key hormones that you'll hear about in menopause, progesterone, estrogen and testosterone. How it happens and why it happens is areas that are still being researched and we'll probably touch on that a lot as, as we chat to the girls today. But it can come under different names, as I mentioned, premature ovarian failure is not a term that's used anymore, thankfully, because I just think there are so many um, different connotations that come with the word failure that really we just want to leave that word out of it. And that's why it was re-termed insufficiency. But um, to just to chat about the journey that has been experienced by Jenny and uh, Ruth, who I'm so excited to have with me today. And we will talk about, you know, their experiences. And I think a big thing that we would like to touch on uh, as part of POI in Ireland is what needs to happen, because um, whilst Jenny and Ruth are here today, we do have a bigger group that we meet on a monthly basis. And really, I think everybody in that group wants to get more awareness and more support in Ireland uh, for POI, because unfortunately, 
again, we can't say statistically why it's happening, but it definitely appears to be on the increase, not just in Ireland, but globally as well. So um, welcome, girls, and thanks so much. And it's so lovely to meet the two of you (laughs) in present. And unfortunately, we can't even hug, but at least we got to do an elbow, an elbow shake. Um, So, Jenny, would you like to start maybe just with your journey? And and I think one big thing, if you can, if you're comfortable, just to mention what age. Yeah, no bother. I suppose it's been quite a long journey. Um, I was diagnosed officially at 16 as having premature ovarian insufficiency, but I would have been experiencing symptoms from the, about the age of 12. Um, and I would have had a period at 13 and just had one. And after that, I had nothing. But I suppose we would have gone to the doctors and kind of said this had happened, but they wanted me to wait until I was 16 to do any further investigations in case they kind of felt my body might kind of kick into gear, you know, between that time. Mm. So around 16, nothing had happened and I suppose I went and they did the hormonal profile and it turned out that I had primary ovarian insufficiency. So um, I think at that age, you can't really take it in, to be honest. Mm -hmm. You don't really know what it means and you you do at a certain level know what it means, but like you can't really take it in. Um, I think the doctors were really taken aback as well. I don't think they had really expected this to come back and they weren't really totally sure what way to manage it either so I ended up going on the um, birth control pill just to replace the estrogen that I didn't have and I suppose they kind of hoped as well that introducing the hormones into my body might kickstart my body that there might be something mm-hmm. else going on but um, it, that never really happened so I, I stayed on um, birth control until I was in my early 20s but during that time there wasn't really there was nowhere really to look for information about the condition or anywhere really to turn. So I suppose I got the medical management, but there was nothing else beyond that. Um, And you didn't, it wouldn't really occur to you to even look it up on the internet or you kind of were just left with the diagnosis really. And I do think that's a really common experience for Mm -hmm. women with BOI is that you don't really know where to turn. Mm -hmm. Um, So in my early 20s, then I went on HRT so I went to see a nutritionist just to kind of balance my diet, just to help manage symptoms. And she recommended that I actually look into HRT. So I changed to that. And I have to say that really did improve the symptoms mm. that I was experiencing. And I felt much better on it. Um, and I remained on that. I'm still on it now, but I did change my dose in my early 30s because I actually found I was living with a lot of symptoms, but had normalized it. And I kind of plowed through my 20s, not feeling very well, but kind of understood that this is it. You know, you just kind of manage it. Um, But towards the end of my 20s, I kind of I had kept going for too long, I think, Mm -hmm. and just suffered burnout at that point and had to leave my job and just take something a little bit more low level just to kind of balance my lifestyle and really focus on getting my health to a place where I needed it to be. So it was actually I started working in a maternity hospital and I spoke to a gynecologist there and told him about my condition. And he kind of said, well, it just sounds like your eastern level is too low and you've been living with a dose that's not right for you. So I luckily increased my dose of HRT up and the change in my life was massive. Like I finally had energy and, Mm. you know, I think anxiety is probably a big part of POI. I don't know, Ruth, if you've experienced that, but I would have had quite a lot of anxiety and once I change the dose of estrogen, it's like it nearly disappeared. Mm. So you're kind of living with these symptoms that you just think are part of you, but actually they're the condition, but you're not given so much information about it that you just don't understand. So while it was amazing to get this new dose and, you know, feel like, oh, I think this must be what it's like to feel normal. Um, there was a lot of grieving in that because mm. there was a lot of time spent on the wrong dose. And you kind of think, God, if I'd known, I wouldn't have had to go yeah. through so much with it. Mm. Um, so that's kind of where that's where I am now. And I think, Jenny, that's one of the big things that I think we all feel that this is where we need to get the awareness out mm. there because yeah. we know that having that depletion in those hormones from the age of 12, it's so, so young. And there yeah. is a long term picture that yeah. has to be looked at in terms of replacing those hormones mm-hmm. in your body. Right. Um, just to go back to when when it all started at 12, was it because you hadn't a period or was there any other symptoms you started to experience at that stage? 
I was experiencing hot flushes, um, I'd say from about 12 and I didn't really understand what they what they were. I actually at the time kind of thought that I was holding my breath and getting a bit dizzy. And that was the reason because I got a bit of dizziness anytime I was getting a hot flush. So I didn't really I didn't really know. Um, and I'd say I was probably a little bit anxious around that mm. time as well. Those two came together. Mm. And then once the period started, well, once I had one period and then nothing after, that's when we were kind of kind of alerted to just yeah. that something wasn't right. And because I think that's one of the questions I got asked a lot about POI is, you know, well, is it the same as menopause? And I think that's one thing. It is the exact same as menopause in terms of the symptoms. But yeah. there's a lot of differences in terms of you can be 12. You, yeah. you know, you, you're very, very young. Um, the long term implica- implications, uh, you know, have to be taken into account in terms of your bone health, your heart health in particular, yeah. because you haven't that supply of hormones throughout those those years. So um, I, that brings me back to you'll have heard me say it before, you know, natural menopause is a privilege. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I know anyone who's hopefully, you know, we'll get a lot of people listening to this. It really is just to appreciate the different forms of uh, menopause. And also, I think it's if you have um, a young girl in your life and she skips, a pe- she, she misses a period, it's pushing that investigation that it isn't maybe just putting her on the pill. It's maybe looking at is there something else there? Now, we do know um, there has been a lot more education in POI in recent years, yeah. and I think particularly in the last probably two to three years in Ireland. But certainly there isn't enough education um, on, uh, you know, in the medical sphere as we want it to be. Mm. And I think that's obviously that's something we want to see changed, you know, hopefully over the, the coming years. And um, just before we we um, we we chat with Ruth, if there was anything you could change about that journey what would it be and I know that's a I know we, we've had many <laughs> conversations <laughs> yeah how do you narrow it down um I just think awareness among the medical profession about how to manage the condition correctly I think yeah. that's a yeah. huge part and follow-up care that it's not just medical management you need mm. psychological support you need peer support you need a community to kind of get you through it because it's not just a physiological condition it's massively an yeah. emotional and psychological yeah. condition and you need as many people around you as possible to support you with that mm-hmm. I think um, and I know Ruth and I have spoken about this before the psychological part of it mm, is just huge. you're you're given a diagnosis you're left and, that's and you have now all of a sudden this very big load to carry because you're not just, you know, you're talking, there's anxiety, there's also fertility, there's mm-hmm. grief, there's long term health. There's a lot of other implications that come into play as well. What I feel about POI is that it's a bit of a double double burden. So like you have the physiological effects which cause you to have anxiety and depression, but then you also will have anxiety and depression just from being diagnosed with the condition. Mm-hmm. So you're managing yeah. both of them, you know, yeah. so it yeah. can be a lot to carry. Very true. Very true. Yeah. Um, Ruth, do you want to share your story? Yeah, um, so my story is, uh, and my experience is quite different to, to Jenny's. And I'm always struck by that when I when I hear different mm. women's stories of POI, how different all our stories are. Um, so I uh, wasn't diagnosed until I was 38. Uh, so that was quite late. So I was having normal, regular periods up to 36 when I noticed that my periods had, um, I was starting to miss periods. Um, and initially I wasn't too worried because I attributed it to, to stress. Um, and it was uh, it, it was a pure coincidence that I actually went to my GP and asked uh, the GP to do blood tests to see were my hormone levels normal. Um, it was actually it was, wasn't a doctor that had recommended me to do that. I was getting a massage one day and happened to mention that my periods had, were becoming fewer and fewer. And the person giving me the massage said, why don't you just go and get, get some blood tests done just to put your mind at ease? So when those results came back, the doctor measured like the three hormones that they will generally measure at first are the FSH follicle stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone and estradiol. Mm. And those results came back and the doctor said, look, your your FSH is a little bit high, um, but you've told me you're doing a PhD and you're hoping to hand in the next few months. So your stress levels are probably quite high. So that's probably what it's attributed to. So come back to me in a few months. Everything is fine. There's nothing to worry about. 
But I didn't take her word at face value. I said, can you send me the results yourself? Because I wanted to look at them myself. And uh, and I could see the ranges and I could see the result. And when I started Googling it, I kept at, like this would have been back in 2014. And I kept coming across pages on, on Google um, uh, with uh, premature ovarian failure, as, as it mm. was known then, which was really, really shocking. Yeah. And uh, so I went back to the GP and or I emailed her and I said, this is what I'm finding. Are you sure these results are normal? Is there anything else that I, I, I need to be um, thinking about or do I need to be worried about? And she called me a few days later and said, actually, you're right. Um, there is something to be worried about. You're, and, and she said the lab ranges were wrong. And I, I've never got to the bottom of whether the lab ranges were actually wrong or whether she misread the, the results. Uh, so she said, we need to refer you to a fertility clinic. Um, and what I did then was I actually went to see a private consultant in a fertility clinic because I didn't really have any faith in uh, that GP mm. anymore after misreading my results. Mm. Uh, so I went to a fertility clinic um, somebody else I had talked to had recommended getting my AMH, my anti-malarian hormone levels tested because the anti-malarian hormone levels is used as a proxy as an indicator mm. of how many primordial follicles you have left. Um, and I went along to that fertility clinic and as Jenny mentioned support earlier and I just remember I, I, I wasn't even in the mindset of knowing that this was something that I needed support with so I went to the fertility clinic on my own um, had an ultrasound uh, on my own had done lots of research so I was asking the nurse lots and lots and lots of questions and eventually she just looked at me and said I think you need to prepare yourself for bad news even before oh, they had done God. the AMH blood yeah. test mm. um, and when the blood test results uh, came back um they couldn't even measure my AMH levels because it was so low. And when you get those results back, they give you kind of age ranges of women mm, and mm. the average kind of AMH. And I could see that my AMH was below even women, maybe 10 or 12 years older mm. than me. Um, so it was it was a huge, huge shock. Um, and, and the word neg negligible was all over that kind oh. of PDF. And I opened it like a God. negligible um, profile or a uh, negligible success with IVF. Basically, you're finished. Um, so, so, so that was that was a massive uh, shock. And again, I hadn't I hadn't told anybody at that stage either. So I was carrying mm -hmm. all that myself. And it was a it was also a shock because, I mean, Jenny talked about the symptoms that she was experiencing. I hadn't I hadn't experienced any symptoms that was indicate okay. that would indicate that I was nearing menopause, perimenopause. I hadn't even mm -hmm. heard of the term perimenopause at that stage. To this day, I have never experienced any symptoms of menopause. And um, so I have a very, very different experience of, mm -hmm. of other people. So unless I had actually gone and got those blood tests um, and and challenge those blood tests and actually gone and kind of done my own research, I wouldn't have known until like my last period that I was actually um, in a, a menopausal profile. Yeah. Uh, so what I did after that was, um, I think I was I, I was in denial, really. I, I couldn't actually believe that that it was happening. Um, also, because I didn't have symptoms, so it was like, no, this this can't be real. There must be some kind of mistake, um, even though the results are very clear. So I had found on the NHS and the pub because I was in Scotland at the time in the public health system, uh, a fertility specialist went on a waiting list to see her and they did my AMH results again. And this was a year later. Uh, and the tests that they did on, on the NHS were even less sensitive than the one in the private clinic. So again, they couldn't measure anything. Um, and I remember in both those consultations with the both the private consultant in 2014 and the NHS consultant in 2015, I remember asking both of them, is there anything that I need to be aware of? They were both very, very focused on fertility. Yeah. Are you going to have a baby? Do you want to have children? These are the methods mm. that are open to you now, not with your own biological eggs. It was really, really a really narrow focus. And I said, I remember asking both of them, is there anything else I need to be aware of in terms of kind of nutrition, diet, exercise, things like that? And they both said, no, nothing else to be aware of um, and your periods uh, will probably stop within the next two years you're perimenopausal and you probably have your last period like within 18 months to two years and they and they were right mm. on that so I was kind of just dealing with that then I suppose and um, thinking okay well they've told me there's nothing else to do I've kind of seen a GP two specialists um, and in the meantime I moved back to Ireland now I had a friend in 
Scotland uh, who was supporting me through this uh, when after I got my diagnosis. She was an ophthalmologist at the time, but then started to train as a GP. She was very aware of her lack of knowledge or our lack of knowledge in this area. And she was really concerned that I wasn't getting proper care. She didn't know mm. what that care should be. And when I came back to Ireland, she kept putting pressure on me to find somebody that was specializing in would specialize in menopause. And I found initially I found um, it very hard to find who that person might be because I was asking, say, if I went to my GP for something or if I went to the nurse to get a smear test done, I'd say, who should I see? And they'd say, mm. well, any GP really will know something about menopause, but that wasn't what I wanted. Yeah. So eventually I asked, um, I asked somebody else who 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 was friends with the GP, can you find out from her, from her network, if there is somebody, because I know GPs have specialties. Yeah. And the answer came back immediately, you need to see Deirdre Lundy, yeah. Dr. Deirdre Lundy. <laughs> and I was lucky at that point. Now, this was 2019. This is five mm. years after my mm. diagnosis. Um, and I was lucky at that stage that her uh, waiting list was only like maybe about three months long, three or four months long. So I managed to get uh, into see Dr. Deirdre Lundy in 2019. And the first thing she did was to send me for a bone scan. And I remember she shook her head when she heard that I had been diagnosed five years before. And she said, we have lost five years. You should have been sent for a bone mm. scan five years mm. ago. Um, and this was the first that I had heard about the link between um, uh, early menopause or bone POI health. and bone health, osteopenia, osteoporosis yeah. and also brain health and heart health. Nobody yeah. had ever mentioned the broader picture to me before this. It was mm. all about the fertility and the reproduction and uh, not about and, and nothing to do with any of the psychological support or anything like that whatsoever. Um, but even the physiological was like really, really narrowed down to that kind of fertility aspect. So uh, so I had the bone scan and discovered that I had osteopenia and borderline osteoporosis in my hip, um, which was hugely shocking to me. And it was at that point that I started to become really, really angry because mm. I knew that if I had known if I had been sent as I should have been sent five years previously for a bone scan, mm. um, I probably wouldn't have been borderline osteoporosis. I would have had some osteopenia, which is below average, yeah. but not osteoporosis. And I uh, could have paid more attention to the kind of exercise I was doing, which was not weight bearing exercises. I, mm -hmm. It was like cycling and swimming was my main exercise then, not things like running or strength training or resistance training. Um, so I, I had lost out on five years by not having that information of being able mm -hmm. to care better for, for my body. Um, so Dr. Deirdre Lundy explained um, that the loss of estrogen uh, that you experience when you have POI um, uh, is linked to the accelerated bone density loss, which is why I had osteopenia. So she mm. recommended HRT to me. Now, at the time, I was reluctant to go on HRT, firstly, because, again, it was psychologically, it was really difficult to come to terms with what was happening to me because I didn't have any symptoms. I didn't mm. feel like I was perimenopausal or menopausal. Well, I hadn't had my periods in a few years at that stage, but it just didn't make sense to me. I had no symptoms whatsoever and I felt like really, really healthy. Mm. I could see that the bone scan uh, was showing that that, that I had osteopenia. Um, but, and there was also, I think, a study that had come out a few months before I had got my DEXA scan um, that had indicated that uh, people who were on HRT, when they stopped HRT, that there was an elevated risk of breast cancer uh, not just while they were on HRT, but for 10 years afterwards. Now, this was being hotly disputed yeah. by the medics at the time, but it was recent research and that also kind of made me Red hesitant. Flag. Yeah. So Deirdre was really good, really supportive. And we agreed on a two year plan where I would kind of support myself through nutrition and uh, exercise and uh, supplements, which she, she signed off on. And then I would do another DEXA scan within two years and then reconsider. And that second DEXA scan was last June. And I discovered that I now had osteopenia in my spine, so went straight on HRT okay. after yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and and I was really glad that I mean, looking back, of course, I wish when uh, I had been to see uh, Dr. Lundy in 2019, I had agreed to go on HRT then. But at the same time, I needed to go through that Your for own myself journey yeah. to come to the yeah. point. But I also wish that I'd known back in 2014 um, because then maybe I would have done my kind of two years on. Let's see if we can improve it over two years between 2014 and 2016. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And so I still have, I'm still, I'm just really, really frustrated at the lack of support, the lack of information, yeah. um, and particularly the lack of, I mean, I haven't even started to talk about the emotional side of it and and, and, and the grief, but the, yeah. 
the lack of acknowledgement that this is something that you need to go uh, to to seek emotional support yeah. for from a professional, yeah. which, which I did, but only because my PhD supervisor, who I had confided in, said, you need to do this yeah. um, because this yeah. is going to hit you really hard. Yeah. It wasn't a doctor that said that to yeah. me. It was yeah. an academic. And that's where the that's where the support structure needs to massively change. And I mean, I know like we've talked about this, a simple thing, medical card. HRT yeah. is expensive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Jenny, if you were back and like, you know, if you had started HRT, say at the age of 12, and we know we've young people in our group who are on HRT yeah. and who are young, it's expensive. Mm -hmm. It should be covered under, under the medical card. I mean, you know, there's some basic things that need to be looked at. Now, I know obviously in the UK, they're um, more progressed in terms of coverage for HRT or so forth. But I certainly, uh, you know, my personal views on this. I just think POI needs to be put early menopause. The various forms of early menopause, POI being one of them, needs to be put at the top um, priority when it comes to menopause support in Ireland. Um, just Ruth, when we talk about the, if you don't mind talking about the emotional side of it. So when we look at, um, like you haven't had physical symptoms, you haven't had hot flushes and things like that. And many, like I've never had a hot flush. I'm 51. I'm well into perimenopause. And to this date, I haven't had a hot flush, but I've had other things. You know, I've had heavy periods. I've had brain fog, you know, numerous other symptoms. We know menopause differs for every single, every single person. But when you look at the emotional aspect, what would you say has been the most challenging? It's a really, really deep grieving process um, that that I I mean, Jenny mentioned grief as well, but definitely it was a very deep grieving process that I had to 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 go through. Um, and I was aware that I was going through a grieving process around that. And and I had dealt with grief before in, in a different context. So I was lucky in the sense that I had those reference points mm -hmm. within me. Um, and I was in a position where I was willing and able to feel those really, really strong emotions and to actually be aware of the kind of almost a crumbling of my identity that was happening because it brought up really, really fundamental kind of existential questions because I was somebody who had always really wanted to have children. I had expected to have mm -hmm. children. I thought that my own biological children would be part of my life going forward. All of a sudden, that was like literally from one day to the next taken away from me. So it made me start. And, and we're, we're also constantly told by society that part of being a woman is you reproduce, you have children. Mm. Um, so we're conditioned um, that being a woman means having having children. Uh, and when you couple that with like a desire to have children and then suddenly is taken away from you, um, I found myself really questioning what it meant to be a woman. Like, was I still fully a woman if I couldn't have children? Um, and along with that, like with the emotion of grief came the emotion of shame, which is also really, really difficult. Because if you think like historically how uh, women who well, it's, it has always been assumed historically that women who haven't been able to have children, that it is uh, as a result of a woman's infertility. Um, but if you think of like the words like uh, barren, etc., mm -hmm. that have been used mm -hmm. in the past, I mean, historically, there's a huge amount of stigma yeah. uh, and shame yeah. around that. So they were really, really difficult emotions to, to grapple with. And it took me, I think, let's see, 14, 15, it probably took me between two or three years until I reached a point when I could actually start to come to terms with where I was um, and, and who I was and who I could be and actually start to think about and visualize forward and, and, and think about, well, if my life going forward is not going to be a life with children or I'm not going to be a, a, a mother during my lifetime, what kind of choices does that open up to me that I might not have had if I had had children and to mm -hmm. look at it from that perspective? And one of the reasons that I was able to start doing that, uh, that 
kind of visualization for myself was because I was uh, I was in Israel Palestine at the time in 2016. I was doing a, a postdoc over there, and I had no nobody going over. And completely um, bizarrely, the uh, closest friends that I made over there happened to be from the queer community. Um, and I had, well, I was just 41 at the time, and most of my friends from the queer community were in similar age to me. So they were like late 30s, maybe early 40s. So I was suddenly part of this community where people have are very, very good at constructing their own family units and um, their chosen families. And I was surrounded by people who were my age and who were living quite like unconventional lives by kind of society standards of what's mm. normal and not normal. And these were people who were living immensely rich and creative lives. And it was hugely inspiring to be part mm. of that. Um, and I don't think reading about it would have actually helped me. I think I needed to have that actual emotional connection with them to actually be really assimilated and and part of that community to kind of have that embodied experience of other people living these lives that they actually have created and forged for themselves that don't match what societal so, expectations yeah. are. Yeah. So I think that allowed me to kind of take that step into, OK, I can accept where I am and now I can start imagining where I can actually be going forward um, and, and what choices are open to me and, and what way I want to kind of forge mm. and create my life um, and and really acknowledging that it can be uh, it can be valid and full and and beautiful. And yes, that I was myself um, still fully a woman and will always be becoming who I am. Um, whether I have children or not. Yeah. Um, and the grief part, the grieving process is kind of still, it's it's still ongoing. I don't mm. think that will mm. ever, I don't mm. think that will ever kind of end. There is always that grieving process that will, that will go on in parallel. Um, and, and I think like that grieving process mm. happens um, in natural menopause too. Mm. You know, whether you've had children or not, you will, or you, you may go through a stage where you can actually grieve the fact that if you haven't had children, that's a, a grief, but maybe the fact that it's no longer an option, um, even if you've had children, you know, so it's it's it is, as you say, it's it's harrowing, mm -hmm. you know, and it's it's with you and it's two journeys. It's it's probably more than two journeys, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Um, like Jenny, like at, at the age of 12, having hot flushes. Where do you go with that? Like, no fun. where? Like, how how did you manage that in school? Yeah, um, I actually don't know. I can't. You get really used to it. You just yeah. get used to that. Like, I, for anyone that experiences hot flushes, it's just a rise of heat in mm. your body, and you nearly mm. need to take a few minutes out, mm. and you just manage it. Um, yeah, I suppose it does set you apart, though, um, mm. from your peers. Like, you, do, I did really experience. That I, I did feel quite different. I felt like they were kind of moving on in a, in a certain way yeah. that I wasn't. Um, and that was quite hard. And I wouldn't like I never spoke about having the condition with anybody until my early 20s. Okay, I was just going my, to ask yeah. that. Did you no. did you did you either, when did you confide in people? Because I know I know a lot of the, the, the girls in the group have said that um, it took them a long time mm -hmm. to confide in people because they felt a sense of um, shame Absolutely. around saying it. And I mean, that's just it's so wrong on so many levels, not not on your part, but I mean, on society's part that, again, it's it just needs awareness and understanding. Yeah, I think as well, it's such a big thing to confide in somebody as well. There's mm. a lot of weight to that, like when you mm. say to somebody, I have this condition and I can't have children that does affect them as well. And I suppose they feel awkward. And even if they want to come across as really supportive, I think sometimes people don't know how to hold space for it. And mm -hmm. that actually can make you feel worse. Like, you know, that can have an impact on you as well. And I think you sense that at a certain level. So you just don't confide because it's a really vulnerable thing. And oh, as Ruth yeah. was saying, it's so tied into being a woman. I mean, mm. we're not just, you know, biologically here to have children, but it is a big part of ourselves and you do lose a massive aspect of who you are and you really do question your identity and I would have really struggled with that for a long time um around what's my place here and 
what will my life be like um, if I'm not going to have children, you know, mm. and I think it's lovely to hear Ruth talk about that community that you found mm. and saw people creating these really lovely, rich lives that they've created for themselves. I think that's that gives a lot of hope um, for people. And that's something we really need to focus on as well. Mm. But I think for myself, the main I, I suppose finding out when you're young that you're not going to have children it does you do start to accept it it's quite difficult but for me I've known for such a long time and my option is you know donor eggs and I'm really excited about that but I think if I had gotten the diagnosis at an older age and it's like the rug is pulled out from underneath you it's it's quite different but for me the hardest part actually was just managing the symptoms because they were so severe mm-hmm. like it just really impacted my ability to to live my life and as Ruth was saying you're not really given any information around like you know look after your heart or look after your bones or it might be said real casually to you and in my 20s like I really pushed the boat out I just enjoyed myself and I probably did more damage to myself than I should have but if I'd been aware of you know how it was going to affect my health I possibly would have looked after myself a little bit better Mm. so I think that's a massive part as well Mm. for you know the medical community to really hammer that home that you know you Unfortunately, along with this diagnosis, you're going to have to make massive lifestyle changes. Yeah, I know when um, I spoke at um, the last um, Daisy conference they had, uh, God, now you you lose the years with COVID, (laughs) but it was in the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital and um, it was Daisy Day and, and and I spoke at that. And I remember I met a lot of parents that were there with their children um, and it was from I think 13 upwards and that was one part of it that was very clear was the long term and the focus that was being placed on the long term implications and I think you know that's the piece that you've missed Um, and unfortunately we know from the support group it's a piece that many um, I'd say probably nearly all of um, the members have missed, um, you know, so I think that's where, you know, the change is so important in really getting the right support. And like it's it's not being sat down at a table and told you POI and then that's it and you're left um, because that emotional piece is massive and like Ruth you you know you were saying you went to the, you you went to that appointment on your own I mean how would you know you, you wouldn't be expecting you wouldn't even be thinking that this was coming you know it's not going to be in your radar it's not going to be in the radar of a 12 or 13 year old because they'll have absolutely no awareness of it um, when we look at, um, you know, where things are now in relation to, I know it's um, Deirdre, as we know, is a fantastic advocate for POI um, and she was part of the clinic um, in Hollis Street and is now part of the, the, the new menopause centre that's there. But in terms of, you know, what would you say to anyone listening who maybe is going through the process or maybe has a daughter who you know, they may, you know, they, we, like if you think about it, um, I've got a 15 year old now, I've all boys, but, you know, there'll be many um, people who will have young girls. And, and I hear that a lot where they're just put on the pill. There's no further investigation given the period stop. And there might be one or two other symptoms. Anxiety generally yeah. tends to be a big one. Um, you know, what would you say to anyone who's kind of, doesn't know what's happening or maybe is in the middle or the start of this process I would definitely say to connect in with as many people as you can around POI and I suppose you know look for specialist clinics if you can um you know connect in with the community of your peers who are going Mm. through the same thing because while you get the emotional support you'll also get information about you know certain doctors that you can go to um I think that's a really, really important part. And because part of POI is actually isolation is a massive part mm. of it. Like today is the first time I've ever met anyone with POI and I've had it for 20 years. And oh, isn't that just you said that to me on email yesterday. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, my God, yeah. like this is this is so wrong on so many <laughs> levels, you know, 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something you hold in 
you know, you hold it in a lot and it is at the back of your mind and it does cloud everything that you do in your life. Mm. So to be able to meet somebody is amazing and it does give you a good release. You know, even mm. our online community has just been it's a lifesaver, like for a lot of people just yeah. to have people to relate to in relation to your symptoms because when mm. you're suffering with them on your own it's, it's difficult and you know in work I'd nearly there'd be women going through the natural menopause and they'd be talking about their flushes and I'd like nearly want to, sit, to talk to them about it and I'm like oh I don't want to like be so vulnerable and they wouldn't expect me to come out with something like that but you you know there's there's an opportunity to share but you can't mm. share you know mm. so I definitely would say connect and another thing I would say is fight and I really hate to yeah. have to say that but you have to be your own advocate on this journey 100%. unfortunately yeah. and if you are not getting the care that you feel is right or if you're not feeling okay on the medication you've been prescribed go and do your research and like it's really really hard to say that to people as well because you're already under so much pressure with the condition and then to have to fight for your basic right for care is mm. it's another massive hurdle that you have to leap but for your long-term health you absolutely have to do it it's mm. it's really really important yeah and i think it's it's even like ruth what you were saying earlier about the blood test i'm i always say to anyone who um i'm kind of working with you know if they're getting blood tests get a copy get a copy because what happens is we tend to rely on the call we get from maybe the receptionist or you know um at the admin in the surgery just giving us one or two results but it's really important to just get a copy so you start to understand your own blood work because it's your body um and you like a hundred percent you have to be your own advocate you know because you've got to keep like Ruth as you said you kept questioning you've got to keep questioning because you know look we we do know that more awareness in the medic with GPs is happening around POI but does every GP in the country understand POI no we know for a fact that's not the case but it's going to take a long time for that change to happen but I think you know a starting point is making sure you're comfortable with your with your blood work and with what's being told. Another big, big, big one for me is the fact they straight away, it hops straight onto fertility. And it's like, Ruth, you were saying, you know, you weren't told about the implications for your bone and your heart and your brain health until you met Deirdre, you know, and that's wrong. Yeah, I actually, um, kind of put into our group chat just I said to the girls that I was going to do this podcast and was there anything they wanted mm. voiced and a big thing that actually came up was that they weren't given fertility options it yeah. wasn't discussed and particularly for women that were single they were kind of told well this doesn't apply to you at the moment so you don't need to go down that route which leaves you at quite a big dead end um and you can end up feeling dismissed and I think that was a massive thing yeah. that the girls were saying as well that you know, like we said earlier, this is just, it's not just early menopause. There's so many aspects mm, to it and mm. you need a lot of support. And when you look at the fertility options, I mean, now we know that egg freezing is yeah. another option that can be looked at. So to know that earlier is going to be of value. So that's where, you know, yes, we we just don't want to hone in fully. Uh, it needs to be a full 360 of your kind of your health now and your health in the future. Um, and then, yeah, as you say, it's covering those options. Um, I I totally get the dismissive. I mean, I think we have seen that we in um, the the POI group um, that I run, we have there's over 65 members, but on 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 the average monthly group, we probably average, I don't know, 10 to 15 each each month, but different people drop in and each month and so forth. Um, I certainly think that's been a running theme has been the dismissive nature of kind of the, the journey you've experienced and, you know, um, how you've been treated and left in isolation given a diagnosis and then you're kind of left to carry that without the knowledge and the information of where to go. And I think, you know, I think most doctors go to work every day and they want to do a great job and really support their their patients. You know, I just think it's a massive lack of awareness and mm. training for doctors mm. that they don't they don't know how to manage yeah. it or. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a huge area that needs to be covered. And I guess the other thing is, is we know it's still an area that's still 
it's still relatively new, like 1942, the first time that it was termed. Um, that's not that long ago, really, you know, in the bigger scheme of the medical world. But I guess the other thing is, is there's no definitive reason as to why POI happens. There's ideas of it being genetic. There's ideas of it being due to an immune disorder that might have happened at some stage. So I think all of that, too, you know, adds further complexity to it but certainly there's the warning signs there's the red flags that you can look out for you know it's like even you know your amh level route that you mentioned you know again there's simple things that could be done yeah i mean if i had known if i like the question that you asked earlier about if there was one thing that we could change i wish that i had known that my amh levels were so below average when i was in my early 20s Mm. Um, maybe I wouldn't have frozen eggs, but at least I would have had a choice. Yeah. I would have been able to consider yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and and it's that it's it's that feeling that you have had like all these choices taken away from you because you haven't had the information mm. that you could have had if there had been proper care or proper awareness there. Yeah. And I think also the the dismissal or the dismissiveness that you're talking about, I think that also impacts us in how we deal with it uh, psychologically, because one of the things that I would say to somebody who's dealing with POI or who has just been diagnosed with POI is really to to give themselves time to acknowledge and to process the grief. Um, Because I think when we are dismissed um, or gaslighted by the medical profession, then the enormity of the grief we are feeling, I think that we can have a tendency to actually dismiss that ourselves and think, well, yeah, why am I why am I feeling like this? Like I've just been kind of left on my own and told there's nothing else that 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 you can do. Just go and, and deal with this. But it's so, so important, I think, to to acknowledge and to to honor kind of the um, the extent of the of, of the grief and the trauma that you actually have to, mm. to deal with, not least because of the isolation Mm-hmm. um that you are that, that that you are dealing with as well on top of that mm-hmm. um so and and also something that um jenny mentioned about like confiding in people i think having a language to articulate this in in a way that makes sense to you and helps you to process it i don't think that's um readily available and on a like beyond poi on a much broader scale we're not given the tools like we don't learn in school. We're not we're, we're not schooled in emotional intelligence. We are fortunate if kind of our life choices or if we're born into circumstances where we're able to say go to therapy or to do inner work and that kind of thing and to develop that language and those kind of reference points for ourselves. But so I think it's also important to be important or, or to be careful about who you confide in, because as you said, it makes yeah. you really vulnerable mm. and one of the worst things I think is if you if you confide in somebody um, that 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 this has happened to you and that you're experiencing this great this huge grief, as you said, it's often people don't know how to hold something of that enormity and they tend to jump to the what can we do to fix it? So the amount of times um, that people have like immediately said to me, oh, would you would you consider adopting? And it's just not what you need, of course. Like I'm an intelligent person. I know that that option is there. Mm. I don't need to be told that by you. If I'm sharing mm. this with you mm. and making myself really vulnerable, I need empathy. Yeah. And I need you just to tell me this is really awful mm. and I'm really, really sad mm. and I'm really sorry for you. And can you tell me what you can do to support me? Mm. It's so simple, mm. but we're not trained to do that. No. And we should be. Because I think sometimes like we feel afraid if we don't understand something, we feel afraid. And that's why you jump automatically into, well, practical, what can I do? OK, well, how do we fix it? Mm. OK, I'm really afraid about this. I don't know anything about this. How do you fix it? Mm. Um, and I guess, look, that is back to having that ability having the emotional intelligence you know um it's just it's 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 like um jenny you mentioned you know that about the grief aspect of it it's like you know um um i've experienced grief like it's you know when someone crosses to the other side of the road because they don't know what to say to you you know these you know it does happen and i i think that's just kind of this is where the the education and awareness mm-hmm. piece so let me ask you one question if you were sitting in If you were back now and sitting in secondary school and you were educated about POI, would it have I would have gone? It probably might have gone over your head, Ruth. But what would you have taught Jenny if it came up in school? 
God, I don't know. Um, I would actually be like really taken if I didn't, if I wasn't diagnosed with it and yeah. we were learning about mm. it in school, I would be so taken aback at how severe it is mm. um, and how it can impact your life. And um, I think that's the, the the sad thing about having the, the condition is that at the end of the day, it's a chronic condition and it's not recognized as that. Mm. And we're not getting the proper care that we need. Um, and as a result, people are really, really suffering. Mm. I, 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 but you see, I, I think, you you know, like I'm massive in terms of getting this onto the SPHE curriculum and um, menopause and all forms of menopause and um, transgender, all forms of menopause have to be included. But because one of the things is, say you are, say you are 13 or 14 and you're sitting there and say you've had one period and all of a sudden you don't have any more. And, you know, maybe you might start to question, oh, you know, well, I just think even the small nuggets of information information will give you that little bit of power you know even whether they do go over your head at some point it might come back in you know somewhere along the line and just having the start build up on that knowledge so that you actually know okay well this exists and the fact somebody is talking about it it's okay within the parameters of how it's been talked about you know as opposed to I've never heard that before this is a term I've never heard about and that's fear there's fear in the unknown. I think if if I had learned, because I remember a lot of my biology from, I mean, I did biology <laughs> up to leaving cert. I remember a lot of it. I think if I had been um, given that information as like within the context of uh, of, of biology um, as part of the reproductive cycle. I'm, and also I'm, I'm somebody who's a planner, so I think and I had started to realize like in my 20s that I definitely wanted to have to, to, to have children. I'm pretty sure that I would have tried to do blood tests at that stage just to mm. make sure that mm. I am not in that like tiny percentage of people um, that uh, need to be aware that they that, that they might have POI or that their AMH levels are very, very low. Mm. That information, I think, would have made a huge, huge difference for me. So. I think definitely yes, it would it would make a massive difference to 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 young women uh, like Jenny who are actually experiencing POI. But I think it would make a difference to to, to people who who don't even know or may not know until much later in life, uh, like yeah. me, that they yeah. have POI uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just to feel uh, acknowledged yeah. and to kind of again putting that language around kind of your experience. Um, and I think I, I mentioned to you before Catherine one of the one of the things I came across which actually helped me in terms of language and articulating um uh, what was happening during menopause even though um my experience was was early menopause or POI was uh, uh, a, a school that I came across in the UK called the Red School who do work around oh, yeah. periods yeah. and menstruality yeah. and in 2019 they had developed their first online program for menopause so I signed up to that because I knew that I was still like psychologically, I hadn't actually really come to terms properly with my my own menopause journey mm-hmm. because it was just so unfathomable. Yeah. Um, and it's a language that wouldn't necessarily work for everybody. And um, there's a spiritual aspect to it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but they divide menopause into five stages. But the most important stage for me was that the first stage they call betrayal. And that was so important because it really made me acknowledge how betrayed I felt by my body Mm -hmm. at 38 Mm -hmm. when I found out that Mm -hmm. this was happening. And it meant that I was then able to acknowledge that I had my relationship with my with my body had changed, particularly with my reproductive system had changed and that that was something that I needed to to rebuild. It was like there was a part of my body that and I'm somebody who's very and has have always been particularly during since my 30s very very body aware in terms of when I when I did have my periods I was I would always have been very aware of kind of my cycle and my, the different stages of my cycle so I was somebody who was who was who was very um uh very close I suppose to to, to my body in terms in terms of my awareness um but that particular first stage having that language calling it betrayal it was really important for me to acknowledge that there had been that betrayal that had happened and that that was something that I need to address and to move through. Mm. Um, and I think that moving through that uh, stage and rebuilding that relationship my, with my body was, is still was and is still also really important for me to actually 
move forward with my life mm. Mm. and to forge my life going forward. Yeah, yeah, because because you're you're going forward in a in a different way, right? And it's just kind of you know understanding that. Um, it's it's adapting to the journey that comes with it. If we look at so, what do we need to change in Ireland? We need to get it in education. We need to get it. It has to be covered under medical cards. I'm sorry, but it just has to be. <laughs> That's yeah, to me absolutely. is just a, a no brainer. We need, as we know, for all forms of menopause, we need the medical support to um, be very strong, to be very up to date, to be very informed. Um, we know we need a support structure. It can't just be you get a diagnosis, you walk out the door. You need to have particularly you need the psychological support. And I also think, you know, I think there's other parts I would say we should be including in, like we should have a pelvic health physio. We should make sure the DEXA scan. There should be a, a nice little, you know, here's the checklist. Here's now what you've got to do to make sure we're protecting you now and we're protecting you for the future. Um, what, what else? Or are there other things? I think, I mean, you've touched on it with your with 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 the medical card, but one thing that we haven't really discussed expressly is like how much money you need to have to actually be in the position that uh, I'm in or Jenny's in to be able to afford the medication that you've yeah. been paying for mm. since you were 12 um, for me to have been able to kind of uh, afford to go see a psychotherapist, to go see a private consultant, to pay to go to the Bray Women's Health Clinic, for example. I mean, the, the Hollis Street uh, public service has only happened recently, but you mm. only get one or two appointments there and then you're back on your own. So it's not something that is well covered by the public health system. So it's only people of certain means that can access this information. Yeah. And that's yeah. not fair. Yeah, that is yeah. not right. Yeah. I mean, I shouldn't be in a position um, to access this information because I can afford it and somebody else not. Yeah, 100 um, percent. Yeah. So that's where. You know, there needs to be the medical card is one part of that, but it needs to be that it all comes under really it's community support, like through the HSC or how, however that looks. Um, it needs to come together that there is a very concrete framework there that gives and this support can't be one or two appointments. This support has to be ongoing because this isn't a condition that's going to go away. And it needs to include psychological support. Yeah, that needs to be funded yeah. as yeah. well as yeah. the physiological support yeah. as well. Yeah. Anything you'd add, Jenny? Um, I had something there now. It's after you've gone away on me. <laughs> that, 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 that'll be the brain fog. That's the brain fog today. <laughs> Don't worry, I had that earlier because I couldn't actually remember the door into the studios here. So <laughs> I'm still active with my brain fog. <laughs> I think one thing is, I suppose, something that we're all trying to do at the moment is just get the conversation going around mm, it. And mm, that will remove yeah. the shame and the stigma yeah. because there's a huge stigma to it. Yeah. Yeah. And like Ruth was saying, like you do yeah. reject your body. You do feel so betrayed. Yeah. And... You can't help but adapt that as part of who you are and you really have to work so hard yeah. to not feel like that. So and then when you feel you can't speak out about it, that just really feeds it. So, yeah, having open conversations and as you say, having it on school curriculum, it mm. normalizes it. Mm. You know, it, mm. it becomes into our awareness from a young mm. age. So it's something that everybody knows about so you can speak openly about it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've we, we have made great strides in terms of, you know, discussing mental health and aspects like mm. that more openly still work to be done. But I, you know, certainly I, I think when you look at menopause, I mean, that I mean, we've it's been blown out of the water. I would definitely say in the last five years, definitely it has been. Yeah. But within that now, we've definitely, I guess, within our small community POI, we have seen more awareness over the last probably six, nine months, I think I would say. Um, but I joined the Daisy Network um, seven, six, seven years ago, you know, so it's ongoing being an area I've been trying to just bring more focus, as has Deirdre Lundy, as has Karen Soffel, Brenda Moran is a huge advocate down in Cork, you know, so I think, you know, it, it's just trying to keep the momentum. Um, but I think we just need to make sure that we get it heard out there. And I'm very, very conscious of the fact that um, I know 
for a fact there is young girls who are probably going through what you went through Jenny and they're being put on the pill and that's it and yeah. that really has to change because the sooner they get on the right medication the right regime the better in terms of um, long-term prognosis and also you know that's your youth they're precious years you know so it's having that right support through those years is so important um um, I know from, you know, your stories, I know from many of the, the girls within the group, um, it is a harrowing journey. And um, I remember one of the girls one night, um, I can visually uh, remember this sitting up in her bed and um, I think she was nearly crying, just basically saying, you know, the isolation had been so difficult and it was only through talking. Um, and I know even it's virtually, but still like having that support and knowing that you're not alone is so important. When you look at um, where you're at now, you know, what what um, what kind of brings a lightness to your day in terms of, you know, what what is it that I know, Jenny, yoga is your <laughs> Just like, <laughs> yeah, like I got my running. I think you have your yoga. Am I right? Yeah. Is that your? Yeah. yeah um, I started practicing property in the last two years and it's made such a huge difference to my life and my health. Like it's, it's amazing when you find something that really yeah. works for you. Um, and it just gives you a space to really connect in with yourself and um, I suppose process a lot of things as well. A lot There's a lot around, you know, holding trauma in the body and doing mm. a lot of body movement to work that out. And I think yoga is amazing for that and it really can help people. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Anything else? Just, I don't know, enjoy life. That's mm. my attitude is just have fun and keep things light, you know? Yeah. Ruth? Uh, for me, it's definitely sea swimming. Ah, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Just immersing myself in the sea. Yeah. And this is the first year actually that I've been swimming year round. Um, and yeah, that's that that definitely brings a likeness. It, it just completely changes my perspective on whatever's happening. Yeah. I know I just need to jump into the sea <laughs> and I'm lucky in that it's that's my work as well. I'm a marine social scientist, so I'm immersed in the sea. OK, so there's the a reason for that. For that's work. lovely, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, um, I used to be a diver, but I'm, I don't dive anymore. But no, sea, sea swimming definitely is is where I go to when I yeah. when, when I need to bring <laughs> an outlet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think exactly. that's really, really mm. important for all of us in any stage mm. of life. It's just having that outlet, isn't it? That, you know, and and it like, my God, you're going to f there's no time you're going to feel more alive than when you're mm -hmm. in the sea, <laughs> but also, particularly in January. Yeah. Also, one of the things this is completely separate to sea swimming or, or, or yoga or body work. One of the things that has really reassured me is um, that I now know that I am really well taken care of. I'm taking care of my body. Mm. I have consulted the right experts. I have mm. got all the information. I know who to turn. To. I have got the support group. I know who to turn to if I need something more. So I know where to look now. Yeah. And I've like, but it's taken me five. No, what are we now? 22. Mm. Um, so it's taken me several years to bring all this information together, together yeah. and to be confident that I'm doing what I need to do. There's a huge, yeah, it, it kind of had taken a huge weight off my shoulders to actually have consulted experts in the area that I know I need expert advice mm. on. Mm. Um, but it's taken a huge amount of work to kind of identify who those experts are and, yeah. and to get that advice. And that, I think, kind of feeling that weight lifted off my shoulders actually kind of reinforces what you were saying earlier. I mean, what a heavy load it is to bear when you are just kind of sent out of the room with that diagnosis and yeah. off you go and deal yeah. with it. Yeah. yeah. And that's where that that's where we come back to the education and the awareness, because if you went into your GP surgery and there was a booklet there on POI and here's where you go and here's your resources. You know, that's how many years, that's several years of research that you've gone from pillar to post to try and get the the, the answers. Um, Can I just say one thing I suppose about a teenage diagnosis is that 100% psychological support would be a huge part of the care, but massive support needs to be given to the parents and particularly yeah. the mums. Yeah. Because yeah. I think, yeah. you know, mums are left with this diagnosis as much 
when your daughter is quite oh, young yeah. and she's diagnosed yeah. with it and you know she may not know where to turn and know how to support her daughter or even as you were saying have the language just to talk to her yeah. about it yeah so I think there needs to be a lot of parental support as well yeah yeah no that's uh, yeah really so important isn't it and I, that's what when I was saying earlier the amount of parents I met that time in London um who were all there advocating for their children but like you know that's that that the charity is there it's established they obviously it's higher populations you know we don't have that here but the journey is can depending on your situation be as a unit you know yeah um but yeah and i'm sure too look uh, women don't tend to be easy on themselves so as a mom you're probably going to think did i do something wrong and all of that stuff <laughs> is mm. going to come in on top of it so um um so girls, thanks so much for sharing your stories. Um, I'm humbled as always. Um, I I know listening to all of the girls in the support group, um, it just reinforces my thought of the fact that natural menopause is a privilege. Um, it really is. And I just think it's it's it just makes it more and more important that we really push this conversation and that we make sure that you know, we get change for for ye, but for the generations coming behind us, because this isn't going away. <laughs> you know, we're unfortunately probably just going to see an increase in in numbers. So it's really important. So thanks so much for sharing your stories. And uh, I know all of the members of the support group will be will be thrilled to listen as well. <laughs> thanks, thanks so for, much. Thanks for creating the space for us as well to share and to feel really comfortable to do it. It's, it's, a, it's a privilege to have Good. that. Yeah, Absolutely. you just get to hear my kids shouting the odd time. <laughs> <laughs>